0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. All right, let us go to our ongoing study in the Gospel of Luke. So we'll be in Luke chapter 9 today. Let me read our passage of the day. Luke chapter 9, I'm going to cover 46 48, but to set the context, picking up where Austin left off last week, start at verse 43, and the context. Jesus is, before I read that, uh, Jesus is about two plus years into his three and a half year ministry, baptized by John the Baptist, that formally set off his public ministry. That was down near Jerusalem, actually over towards the Jordan River got baptized, and then he went back up to his hometown in Nazareth. He settled eventually headquarters in the home of Peter and Peter's family. And that's where Jesus' base of operations was. The entire majority of his ministry up there in, in the north, Nazareth, Galilee, uh, the, actually the city of Capernaum just on the north of the, the sea and that's a lot of where we've been seeing in Luke where Jesus is operating from and preaching all throughout all those 200-plus Galilean towns and cities, proclaiming himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So he's been doing that for two years, and along the way he's got disciples that he's accumulating with his teaching at a very sometimes very superficial level, and they're amassing into massive crowds, He's doing miracles. He's teaching. He's proclaiming the Old Testament. He's preaching repentance and the kingdom of God is at hand because he is the king. And meanwhile, he's also vetting his disciples because he knows he came for one thing. That was to die and to found the church. And to found the church, he needed to start with leadership. That's how any church starts. Every church plant starts with leadership. And so Jesus, the master builder and the head of the church, that's what he's doing. So he's Over the course of this three and a half years, he's going to vet his leaders who he's going to lay the foundation of the church with, and that would be the 12 apostles. So he's vetting these disciples. He selects 12 led by the Father, every single one of them. Not one of them was a mistake, even Judas, the betrayer, who was never saved from the beginning. That was part of God's plan. So maybe two years or so into his three and a half year ministry, he formalizes that selection of those 12 apostles. And now through the rest of His ministry that we're going to see here in Luke, chapter, the end of chapter 9 all the way to Luke 24, the emphasis turns from Jesus ministering to the crowds and the multitudes, really to more of a private ministry to His immediate disciples and in particular the 12 apostles. If you read the Gospels, that is clear. So remember that and pay attention the next time you're, if you're reading through the Gospels. All four of them are the same. One major theme through all four Gospels is that much of it is given to the attention that Jesus was giving to his 12 apostles and their training. It's a major thing. I mean, if you just take the Gospel of John, 21 chapters, more than half of that Gospel is Jesus talking to his 12 apostles. That's how intense and focused and purposeful it is because Jesus came for one purpose. That was to die and to found his church, which would be the guardian of, of the gospel, the good news, and to lay that foundation he needed his select leaders and that would initially be the 12 apostles. So that's why Jesus is focusing on them and so the more and the further we go in the gospel of Luke you're going to see more and more uh, intensely focused and narrow on Jesus' discussion and formal training, teaching, and preparing of his 12 apostles for that very purpose. So there was a major shift when we got to uh, a few weeks ago. Where Jesus had spent two years preaching in all these towns in, in the city of, or the region of Galilee. And then when he decided he's going to leave here and get away from the crowds, and remember, go up north to Caesarea Philippi and where Mount Hermon was, in the furthest part north in Israel that you could go at the time. And he took his 12 apostles away from the crowds, 40 miles away from the Sea of Galilee to get away, to be isolated, to give them specific teaching, where he asked them that pointed question. Who do men say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was a major shift in the ministry of Jesus Christ and also in the Gospels as you're reading it. And you need to notice that. That's a pivot point. That was significant. And then he commended Peter for making that proper declaration that God the Father revealed that truth to him. Then he comes uh, in Caesarea Philippi. We saw that uh, soon after that, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, and they go up again to a mountain there in Caesarea Philippi, the transfiguration, preparing them for the exodus, his death. And then Peter, James, and John come down from that mountain, and then Jesus goes back now, and he's heading to, for the last time, his hometown of, or the home region of Galilee. And for the last time, he's going to go back to headquarters there at Peter's house in Capernaum. He's going to spend some time there, do a little bit of ministry, and then now he's got... His eyes focused on one thing, and that is the cross. That is Jerusalem. And that's going to take us to the end of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. Uh, And so even the theme in Jesus' preaching changes. For two-plus years, it's to the masses. It's general. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He is the king. And then with that encounter he has with the apostles that changes everything and redirects the emphasis of his ministry, the focus is now on training his 12 apostles. And also his message changes in terms of the emphasis of it where he declared to Peter, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I am going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to rise again. And that's when Peter said, no, you're not. And he grabbed Jesus, and then Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're undermining God the Father's plan. You're acting in the flesh. You don't think like God thinks Peter. So Peter was publicly rebuked by Jesus in front of his eleven peers and colleagues. Talk about humiliating and embarrassing. So that that incident is fresh in their mind. Keep that in mind when we read the passage today and go into the detail there. Because what happens today in Luke chapter 9, 46 through 48, is on the heels of that incident where Peter just got publicly rebuked by Jesus over something about him being uh, about him dying and rising again. So that was uh, before they went on the Mount Mount of Transfiguration. So after uh, Peter is rebuked, they go on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James and John, and they see Jesus transformed. It is glorious. Jesus is in His majestic, unveiled glory. And then Elijah and Moses go back to heaven, and God literally speaks out of heaven and then all of a sudden, poof, it's all gone, everything's back to normal. Peter, James, and John are trying to figure out what just happened. They're walking down the mountain, and Peter, exhort, or Jesus exhorted those three guys, do not talk about this to anybody. Don't say anything until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And there's an interesting note in Mark, and it says, they were confused because they, they didn't know what risen from the dead was all about. That's interesting. They didn't know. What, what risen from the dead? Hey, you guys, you know what Jesus is talking about? Did not compute, did not compute. So that's the second time. He's told them, within a very short period of time, I'm going to die and rise again. And then for the third time, in a couple of months, Jesus is going to say it one more time to his disciples, to his 12 apostles, preparing them. Hey, guys, this is why I came. You were raised in the synagogue. You had to memorize... Isaiah 53 and Saturday uh, synagogue school? The death of the Messiah? That's what I'm talking about. And they just don't get it. So let's go and read this passage now. This is after the transfiguration. They went down the mountain. They're heading back to Capernaum, 40 miles. They're going to go to headquarters. They're going to end up actually in somebody's house, probably Peter's house, where this incident takes place, verse 43, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God because Jesus just did that fantastic miracle we saw, casting out a demon. But while everyone was marveling, they were in awe at all that Jesus was doing. I mean, they have seen so many miracles and they are still in awe every time they see it. He said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. I love that phrase. If you're a parent and you have young children, you can, you can say that. Jesus did. Let this sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered, arrested, to be killed. This is the third time he's saying it. Into the hands of men. Verse 45. But they did not understand this statement. There it is, the 12th This is the third time they're hearing it. They know the Old Testament. And they still don't get it. What are you talking about, Jesus? Why, was, why didn't they understand it? It says, because it was concealed. It was hidden. It was veiled from them. That was by God. God in His grace was veiling the full significance of the meaning of this reality from the 12 apostles before Jesus died to protect them. Because of our human weakness and frailty, they probably would have just abandoned ship altogether. So timing is always very important and of the essence, and God's timing is the only perfect timing. So it was; they were protected. God concealed it from them uh, so that they would not perceive it or fully understand the significance and of its implications. And they, they were afraid to ask him about this statement. They were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid to ask him about it? Because they just saw Peter get reamed in public <laughs> for questioning that statement about his death and resurrection. Oh, well, I'm not going to do that, man. I'm not, I don't want Jesus calling me Satan. Are you kidding me? I want to sit on the right or the left hand with the Messiah in the kingdom. They were afraid. So as they're walking down the mountain, walking down the road, going back to Capernaum, a conversation breaks out with the 12 apostles, probably the 12 apostles. And an argument started uh, out among them as to which of them might be the greatest. I don't know, does this ever happen in the back of your van if you're a parent and you have a bunch of kids? Um, an argument started among the apostles as to which of them might be the greatest. Can you imagine? I'm mean, Just meditate on that. No, I'm the greatest. No, I am. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the, I'm Jesus' favorite. No, he likes me better. No, he likes me better. No, I'm going to sit closer to him in the kingdom. No, I am. That is literally what... This is. These are grown men. <laughs> Sound like self-centered teenagers. These are grown men who've been with Jesus for over probably two years. This is not the first or the only time That they were doing this. And there's a reason for it. They knew Old Testament truth. They knew that there was a coming kingdom that was going to be on the earth. They know the Old Testament, they've read it, the prophets, it's clear. There will be a kingdom literally in the future on the earth where the Messiah will reign and He will reign and He will have those who co-reign with Him who will be co-regents. And there is somewhat of a hierarchy of who will rule with the Messiah on the earth. So they're into rank so that was a part of Old Testament reality and future truth with respect to the Messiah, number one. And also in the very Jewish culture, the Jewish culture in the days of Jesus was uh, put a lot on hierarchy and rank. We're going to even see that in Luke coming up when he tells a parable. And he's literally, he's talking about their modern day situation. Okay, guys, when you go to, when you're invited to a banquet or a wedding or a, a fancy hoo-ha kind of dinner and they have a seating and they put those of rank up front and closer Do not desire those seats, but desire the lesser seats. And that was something they understood. This was Jewish culture. The most respected men got the best seats. Who was not really respected? Uh, Children. They weren't significant in the Jewish culture. They're just, they're babies. They got to grow up. They're immature. They're needy. And also in the Roman culture, which is so which affects the apostles because Israel was in a Roman culture as well as a Jewish culture. And in the Roman culture, hierarchy was a big deal. Titles, labels, rank, man-made stratification. That was just a part of their world. We have some of that in our world. So that's their frame of mind. That's their mindset. I want to sit next to the Messiah in the kingdom. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. Verse 47, and Jesus. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart took a child and stood by his side and said to him, whoever receives this child in my this really it's a little child. This is not a teenager. It says he held him and basically put him in his lap. Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him. That's the father who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Hence the title of the sermon where Jesus... Is talking about defining and explaining true greatness. What is true greatness? Do you want to be great? Do we want to be great? Does the world promote how you can be great? And the world has a completely wrong, distorted, perverted definition of what true greatness is and what makes a person great in this life. God defines what greatness is. Jesus defines it right here. He gives a practical example of what true greatness is. It's 180 degrees different than what the world defines as true greatness. I do want us to look at the parallel passage before we go back and flesh out Luke verse by verse and principle by principle because there's a parallel passage where Mark, so you can look in Mark chapter 9 where Mark adds a little more detail. And By the way, when you are, if you're in your Bible devotions or Bible study going through one of the four Gospels, I would encourage you to say, oh, I'm reading through the Gospel of John, I'm reading through the Gospel of Mark. Don't just read through one Gospel at a time whatever passage you're on, you need to consult the other three Gospels. You need the the synoptic, comprehensive perspective. That's why God gave us four Gospels, because they have more detail. Four different perspectives, you get the whole picture. So here, Mark gives us more information about this incident, what happened and what Jesus said, more detail so we can understand it better. So we are blessed to have four Gospels that give us four accounts to give us a stereophonic kind of... Fuller picture of what goes on. The world takes that, turns it on its ear, and criticizes Christians in the Bible and say, oh, you got errors in your Bible. Where's one of the first places critics of the Bible go to say, or to illustrate that we got errors in our Bible? They go to the four Gospels every time. Oh, well, the Gospels contradict each other. Oh, really? Show me. And they'll, they'll go, they'll take Mark. Well, Mark said this in Mark chapter 9, and Luke didn't say that. That's a contradiction. Well, no, it's not. Mark's just giving us additional information. Mark wasn't being exhaustive. Same thing with Luke. They had different purposes, different perspectives in telling their story. So they are going to say different things. And they don't contradict. They actually complement one another. There is no contradiction. But look at Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 33, parallel account. So they came down from 40 miles north uh, up there by Caesarea Philippi, Mount Hermon coming down, going to Galilee, going to the city of Capernaum, going to Peter's house. And along the road the apostles are fighting and arguing with one another about who's the greatest. Jesus is probably up ahead uh, leading the way and within earshot probably and they're fighting and having this argument. It doesn't matter if he can hear it or not because he is allowed to have omniscience at this moment. He knows their minds and their hearts. That's what the last passage says that we just read. So they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, actually the other gospel tells us that he sat down, That's 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 the position of the teaching rabbi. When Jesus had sat down, you'll see that in the gospels. And when Jesus sat down, and when Jesus sat down, what does that mean? And when the rabbi sat down and was ready to proclaim the authoritative teaching of God's holy word, all ears were attentive. So Jesus is getting in rabbi mode in Peter's house, and then he has a seat, and he's ready to give a formal lesson, very practical lesson. Um, when he was in the house, he began to question them. Great teacher. Before he starts spewing information, he wants to see what they think. That's effective teaching. We've got to see where the plumb line is. That's where we start. So he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? He knows the answer, by the way. Great question. Verse 34. But they kept silent. There it is. They didn't want to answer. They knew they were guilty. They had been exposed. Peter just got reamed. They want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Zip. They kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be the last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before him and taking him into his arms. There it is. It's a little child. And he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me and whoever receives me does not receive. Me, but him who sent me. So Mark gives us a little bit more information. This is in Capernaum. This is at Peter's house. This is a small child Jesus takes. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus called the child over. This is in Peter's house. This could be Peter's son for all we know. Peter had a family. Peter was married. Peter's uh, mother-in-law probably lived in the house or nearby. And he calls a young child, no doubt one of Peter's sons. And then Jesus uses him. Jesus, the master teacher, Using visual aids, even for grown ups. And the lesson that Jesus gives regarding the visual aid, the child, Jesus, the master teacher, not only is he using a visual aid, he's using a universal, transcendent, timeless visual aid that applies to everybody on planet Earth in his day and for all time. That never changes. Children don't change, family dynamics don't. Jesus is the master teacher. As opposed to us when we use illustrations that don't connect. We use illustrations that uh, maybe are out of context. Like when you quote from Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, I saw some heads go up on that one when you're teaching. Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, that's a classic. It was written in English, by the way. It's an English book. And when you go over to India and you're in a small village in India and you quote that, that doesn't work. You go to Ghana or in Africa and quote that, that doesn't work. That's uh, ethnocentric. It's very small, limited in its appeal and effective. You can quote Pilgrim's Proverbs, but not, not Jesus the Master. These are universal applications uh, many times. He did use local applications, but he's the master of the universal, ongoing application. That's why he said this 2,000 years ago, but if this applies and is relevant to every single one of us. We can understand this is a simple illustration. Every one of us can relate to this. A little child. Well, I don't have any little children. Well, you were a little child at once. Everybody can relate to this. So let's go ahead and look at it uh, in a little more detail, starting at, uh, we'll go to 46. We'll just kind of walk through it and uh, the theme here is Jesus teaches on true greatness and what that means is true greatness from God's point of view, which means it has to be spiritually oriented really, and defined by God. So if you're pursuing greatness that is not defined by God according to His standard, according to the Word of God, that's not true greatness. That is a counterfeit. You are being misled. So true greatness is true spiritual greatness as defined by God from His Word. So there is a context to define it very specifically. What is true greatness? What is true spiritual greatness that pleases God? That, can we honor God by the I mean, can we please God Is everything we do filthy rags all the time from God's point of view? No. God is pleased with his children. He is pleased with their obedience. And we offer up those as sacrifices of praise. And the aroma of it, he is is pleased when we do it in obedience in keeping with his word. That is absolutely mind-boggling. That the infinite, almighty, holy, perfect God would be pleased with anything that we do. Well, we can please him. And we can do things that are great. Jesus used the word greatness. Can we be great? Yeah, we can from God's point of view. But he's the one that defines that. And it's all of him. And it's none of us. It's his conditions. And that's what we have in this passage. True greatness. Well, what is true greatness? True greatness is being a humble person. There it is. There's your answer. We could end the sermon now and send you home. What is true greatness? Humility. Being humble. The world doesn't comprehend it. The New Testament was written in Greek, the Greek language, because of Alexander the Great spreading that language for in 300 B.C. and it went all around the world and it became a universal language for everybody. And the New Testament writers accessed that. Jesus knew Greek, He taught in Greek, spoke in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. And the New Testament writers utilized the language of the day, Greek, to communicate spiritual truth. But prior to the New Testament writers and apostles. Uh, All these Greek words had different meanings and nuances and a different vocabulary and different associations, different worldview, different context, meaning all the Greeks that came before Jesus and the disciples with with respect to their vocabulary and their index of words in the Greek language. Some uh, were synonymous. There was some carryover in terms of the meanings, but there were words that the Greeks, the pagan Greeks, the pagan great philosophers, Plato and Aristotle and all those guys, Socrates, and on and on, all the way up until New Testament times. They spoke in Greek. They wrote in Greek. They were erudite. But there were some words that the New Testament writers used and Jesus used that the Greeks, they didn't even have words for those. These Greeks, they didn't even really have a word for humility or humbleness. The Greeks. And if they did, it was a despicable term. They wanted nothing to do with the term humility, which Jesus says is the essence of greatness And the height of spiritual maturity, humility, they wanted nothing to do with it. Hardly even had a word for it. So Jesus had to create a word basically and infuse it with true meaning. And it stuck. The apostles did the same. Humility. So really that's what this is about. Jesus is talking about how to be great. That means how to be humble. What does that mean? Well, how not to be filled with pride. That's what that means. And here's his lesson. He's focusing Again, like I said on the apostles, it could be the 12 apostles in Peter's room. Maybe that's their seminary classroom for the day. This is worth two units, guys, on practical ministry before I head to the cross. Pay attention. And Jesus, again, he's the master teacher. What has Jesus been doing for this uh, time, a year plus, that he's been actually formally training his apostles, knowing and he's going to amp that up, as we said, heading to the cross. I've got to focus all my attention on training the 12 apostles who will lay the foundation of the church, And they will pass that legacy on to the next leaders. And the apostles will found the church. They will spread the gospel. They will plant other churches. They will raise up other leaders, other shepherds, other elders. And then they will do the same all the way throughout church history. And that's why you've got to invest and make a priority of training spiritual leaders. And that's what Jesus is doing. This is seminary. And Jesus' seminary education and training was absolutely unique because it was a comprehensive education. It entailed the training of the whole person. Let me remind you of how that is so and how that is in great contrast to how we train people typically today in any field, but even in the ministry of the emphases of seminaries historically and what they have been given to. Not always in keeping with how Jesus trained men for ministry. Uh, Just three areas of training, and it plays right into this. Three ways that Jesus trained his 12 apostles. Number one, he trained them in theology. This was didactic teaching. This is preaching. This is teaching. That was a part of training. Training is not synonymous with preaching. Training is not always synonymous with teaching. Verbal teaching is one form and facet of training. Training is the big picture. You train in different ways. You train verbally with proclamation. You train by uh, showing people how to do things, and there are other forms by exercise, those kind of things. So... Jesus trained his apostles by giving them theology, by preaching and teaching, that was absolutely essential. This is the content and the body of knowledge that they needed. That's one way that he taught, or trained them. We see that all throughout four Gospels. Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the preacher, Jesus the teacher, Jesus came preaching and teaching, says Mark 1.14. That's what he did. But that wasn't it. Jesus trained by verbal teaching, but number two, Jesus also trained by modeling. This is huge. He trained by modeling. Uh, Just a key verse or saying of Jesus regarding that first method of teaching, where we say that Jesus trained by verbal teaching, Uh, a key verse might be where Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. That was one of his favorite terms. What was he doing? He was quoting the Old Testament, expounding Scripture. They absolutely needed that, that formal teaching but he also did training by modeling. And some of his key phrases on this element or component of training these men was follow me, follow me. That was part of the training, follow me. What does that mean? Come watch, come investigate, shadow me. An absolutely vital element and component in good teaching. The greatest master teachers do this. They say, follow me, watch me, keep watching me. Now that you've watched me, why don't you try it? And let me watch you. And let me fix you, and let me guide you, and let me correct you. And let's, well, watch me again. Watch me one more time. This is modeling. Trace Jesus' ministry for three and a half years. Modeling, 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 modeling. Pharisees, did they model? No. It was all spewing information, spewing human traditions, spewing their legalistic dictates. Was there modeling? Yes, it wasn't intentional. Was there modeling? Yeah, the people that were following him and scared out of intimidation. Oh, I guess this is what we do out of fear of being de Was there modeling? Yeah, but it was, it, was, it was not intentional. Jesus, it's deliberate modeling. Follow me. Watch me. Do what I do. And the apostles began to pick up on that because you remember the, those two wonderful passages, Matthew 6 and Luke 11, where they're watching Jesus pray everywhere they go. Wow, Jesus gets up early. We're still sleeping. Jesus, how long have you been up uh, for the last two hours? What has he been doing? Praying, praying privately to the Father. The apostles got to a point where they saw enough of that and they actually said, Jesus, teach us, keyword, how to pray. And then you know what Jesus did? Jesus modeled a prayer, literally. Well, here's how you do it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's modeling. This is how you do it. He was the master. That's what good teachers do. We need to model as we train people, disciple people. A lousy, superficial, ineffective coach, what does he do? He stands on the sideline and just screams at his players, saying what? Do this, do this, don't do that. Don't." Actually, the worst one is just, don't do that. That was stupid. Don't do that. What's a good coach? Uh, comes up, arm on the shoulder, whispers in his ear, shows him how to put his fingers on the football where the strings are, shows him how to follow through. He models it for his disciples. Jesus was the master. Follow me. And then, so Jesus trained by teaching, theology. Jesus trained by modeling. And then Jesus trained his 12 disciples, get this, by emphasizing character. Emphasizing character. There's external training and then there's internal training, there's training of the heart. This is attitude. This is really a spiritual relationship with God is where it all starts, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of true knowledge. This is internal. Phrases that Jesus used to depict this emphasis in his training were things like, blessed are the poor, opening line in the Sermon on the Mount, Luke Chapter 6, verse 20 in Matthew, chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He starts out by saying it starts with humility. What's poor in spirit? That's your heart inner attitude. You are absolutely destitute when it comes down to what is in your heart, what you have to offer to God because of your sin. Blessed are the poor who recognize they have nothing to offer to God except sin and a cry of repentance and help. That's poor in spirit. He goes on in Matthew 5. He starts out, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over what? Mourn over their sin. He goes on, blessed are the poor in heart. There he gets very specific as to what he's talking. It's the heart. He's training the heart. He's getting at the heart. The heart is what matters. The apostles did not know this because this hadn't been modeled for them because they were raised in the synagogue that was led by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And their education was strictly external Superficial, uh, one-dimensional, and it's not spiritual. Intimidation, fear, it's not the pure living Word of God. It's not character training. So that is the comprehensive way that Jesus teaches. Preaching theology, modeling godliness, with an emphasis on the inner character and attitude of the heart. This carries over into the New Testament when the Spirit of God leads the apostle Paul in 1st Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. As you go around and you establish churches, you plant churches, first thing you need, you need to raise up leaders, qualified leaders for the a plurality of lead a plurality of qualified godly men who will be called shepherds and elders. And there's an objective standard that God laid out very specifically with the 21 qualifications. There they are. Most of those have to do with character. Attitude. He explicitly says that uh, it can't be a new convert, convert, 1 Timothy 3, literally, he can't be green. That's what it says. A new, immature, newly budding, and sprouting unbeliever who hasn't been seasoned, who hasn't walked the road, who hasn't been time-tested, who hasn't been vetted. That's what that means. He can't be green. He's got to be mature. And the reason is, otherwise he will become vulnerable to the devil because of the sin of pride. There it is. He will assume too much authority and responsibility too quickly. Won't be able to handle it. So most of these qualifications for a faithful shepherd and pastor. It's not about perfection or sinlessness because nobody is. It's about basic qualifications with respect to their character and attitude. That's where it starts. So this is an absolute priority. And you think about, okay, this kind of training, what, what do we emphasize in our modern-day seminaries? Well, that's easy. Well, it's just, just its just about theology, right? It's all head knowledge. Most of the time, it's all academia. It's all just a bunch of data. Many times we don't even give any attention to the heart. Uh, Like Jesus did. That's why Jesus said things like this. Out of the heart comes sin. It's not what a man puts in his mouth. It's not the external. It's the internal heart that matters. He was always going after the heart. That's why the first word of his message as he's going around, according to Mark 1, was repent. That's the heart. Get right with God. Recognize your sin. Or telling Nicodemus, who had already been trained in theology and a master of the Old Testament, and Jesus goes up to him and says, you must be born again. Basically, he was telling Nicodemus, your heart ain't right. You're not qualified. You're the most prestigious Old Testament scholar in Israel, and you are not qualified, Nicodemus. You must be born again. He was getting after the character, after the attitude, after the spiritual regeneration on the inside. That's where it all starts. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. You must be born again. Deny yourself. Same thing, same thing. This is at the heart. What's your attitude towards yourself? What's your attitude towards God and others? Deny yourself. Lose your life if you must. It's all the same thing. This is the uniqueness of Jesus the Master Teacher in preparing qualified men for ministry. And here's another one of those practical lessons really on character. So let's walk through this in Luke chapter 9. And the lessons that we can learn from Jesus on how to be great, which means how to be humble, which means how to deal with pride, recognize pride. Verse 46, And an argument started uh, among them as to which of them was the greatest. We already talked about that. And I just want to stop and pause and think. What in the world could they be, ta- be possibly talking about with each other? I and mean, just the gall, but we did the same thing. But they had some things that uh, made them somewhat elite that we've already read. Maybe it was, who knows what started this thing, but it is as they're coming down the mountain, going down the road, that we don't know how long they've been gone. The other nine disciples like, wait, Jesus and Peter, James and John have been gone a long time. Where are they? And then they come down, and they are probably just giddy and happy and upbeat as could be. And Peter, he is strutting after getting whooped by Jesus. He's back, confident, big strides. And what made it all the more annoying, well, the other nine, they weren't chosen. Boy, and that wasn't the first time. This kid, boy, this is a repeating pattern. Earlier when Jesus did that miracle, he took Peter, James, and John in the inner room. The other nine, they're left out. Did you see that awesome miracle Jesus did? No, I wasn't invited. And it happens again. So this happens repeatedly. So we know already there's this inner circle. Jesus has his favorites, they might be thinking. Then Peter, James, and John are coming down the hill. They saw the transfiguration. They aren't allowed to talk about it. They got a gag order. They've been muzzled. Hey, what happened up there? Can't tell you. Can you imagine? And they're just jabbing at the other night. Can't tell you. Jesus told me I can't tell you. So that didn't help. So they're arguing about who's the greatest, or maybe they are arguing about who's the greatest because recently we saw the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus said, verse 1, it says, Jesus gave, he called the 12 apostles together, and he gave them, get this, power and authority over all demons. Wow. That is something to boast about. And to heal diseases. They go out, they're preaching, they're doing miracles, casting out demons, coming back, whoosh, Sharing war stories. So uh, how many blind people did you heal? (laughs) Three. I I did five. Maybe they're fighting and arguing about that, about how great they are. Maybe uh, Bowen urges. James and John. Maybe they were bragging that uh, our mom is uh, related to Jesus' mom. We're cousins. We're like this. We're going to sit on the right and the left, James and John. As a matter of fact, we're going to go tell our mommy to ask Jesus if we can. That's coming. So when you're wondering what in the world are they arguing about about being the greatest, so they were elitist uh, in many ways. Uh, They were the 12. Remember, they had hundreds and hundreds of disciples that Jesus had to pray through and select from the disciples. He chose 12 out of a massive group of disciples, and they got selected. They're in the elite group. That's something to be proud of. That's something to fight and argue about. That's something to inflate your ego. Find your self-sufficiency. We do that. This is all pride, uh, seeking greatness out of association with somebody else, because everything that was good and powerful and amazing by the about the apostles up to this point, 100% of it had been given to them undeserved by God, and because of His grace. 100% of it. So everything they could brag about was by association because I am with Jesus. It had nothing to do inherently with of, and of themselves and in their nature. They weren't good. That's like us going around hanging in the coattails of a famous person. I saw a famous so-and-so. I talked to famous so-and-so. Yeah, so what does, what's that say about you? Nothing. Being around other great people doesn't make us great. It doesn't happen by osmosis. So their uh, argument started among them. And so let's look at these lessons on pride as we walk through. Things that pride does, and the first one is based on verse 46, is that pride brings disunity. Pride's, pride divides things. Pride creates a crack, and then guess who zeroes in on that? Satan. That's his strategy. Boy, I need to find a crack. I need to find, a, I need to find two Christians that are squabbling in the church, and then I will accentuate that. Compound that. Take advantage and manipulate that. Oh, I'll find a teeny little crack of a suspicion between two leaders in the church. I can even do more damage. Disunity. That's why over and over and over again, Jesus and the apostles in our Bible, in the New Testament, talking to the saints, the family of God, 100% of us, being adopted by God's grace into the body, into God's family, none of us deserving it. It was all God's grace. We need to preserve the unity of the body, every single one of us. This is our family, the people of God, the children of God, allowing no fissures or breaks to allow Satan to get a foothold. What does pride do? Pride brings disunity, and they're divided. So it's like Jesus has to send them out in less than a year. He can't send these 12 apostles out bickering, and fighting, and being completely self-centered, and plant the church, and start the church, and disciple the people, and minister to the people, and plant churches, and raise up leadership, and be self-sacrificial. Can't do it. They're too self-oriented. You guys, ain't, you guys aren't there yet. we got more training and learning to do. They're talking about how they're the greatest. Little do they know that not too long in the future, they're going to be spearheading the church and the leaders of the church. Most of them, we don't even hear from them except Peter, and they're going to end up giving. They're going to end up getting arrested, getting beat up, beaten with rods, and dying, being murdered for Jesus. That's their future. They don't know it. What else does pride do? Uh, pride has the wrong goal. What is their goal? To be the greatest on a human level you're a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, that's not your goal. I want to be the greatest. I want to advance my ministry. I want to become famous. I want to be well known. I want to be respected. I want people to like me. I want people to look at me and on and on it goes. We have that problem in Christianity big time. That's the wrong goal. What's the goal? If you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, well, I want to lift up Christ's name. I want people talking more about him than about me. I want to be like a traffic Officer on the middle street just pointing traffic. Jesus is that way. Jesus is that way. Officer, you don't have a name badge. Don't need one. Jesus is that way. So pride, wrong goal, just like the apostles. What else does pride do? Uh, Let's keep going through the verse there. Uh, Verse 47, but Jesus, knowing what they were thinking. Where does pride come from? The heart inside. So pride issues from the heart. The inside, your inner being, who you truly are, the origin of all your thinking, the origin I mean the origin of all your words, the origin of all your actions comes from the heart, the inner man. It needs to be transformed. It needs to be born again. It needs to be renewed by God. It needs to be His work. We need to repent of our sins to do it. The Spirit of God needs to do work. The gospel needs to do its work. We need to be changed on the inside. If you're not a Christian, you can't overcome pride. Completely futile to even try. So pride flows from the heart. Uh, what else about pride? But Jesus, knowing that they what they were thinking in their heart, he takes a child and stood. He asked. He actually asked the child, the young child, to come over, and he took the child, uh, stood him there, and then he actually ended up putting him in his arms, and then he became a living illustration for these grown Galilee strong fishermen. This little child. And by using this illustration of a child, first of all, what is Jesus trying to get across about uh, using a young child as an illustration? Here, it's one thing. It's humility. You know who's humble? It's children, little children. They are humble. What does ch- humility mean? Lowliness, lowliness of mind. Thinking lowly of yourself in an appropriate manner. Not thinking too highly of yourself, says Romans 12. Lowliness. And children, they're the epitome of lowliness and humility. They don't even, children are humbled; They don't even know it. That's how awesome they are in terms of humility. And we're talking a young child. And what is the essence of childlike humility? Three things. Real simple. These are always universally true. They are dependent. They are dependent. They are weak. Or needy. And number three, they are not afraid to ask for help. Mommy, give me this. Daddy, give me this. Daddy, I need this. Daddy, I want this. Daddy, I need this. I know you need that. You've asked me seven times. Well, ask again. Daddy, I need this. They know they're weak. They know they're dependent. They know they need to lean on you. They're not afraid to ask. If you're afraid to ask when you need to ask, you know what you are or what I am, self-sufficient. So, no, I can do this. No, I know I need help. I know it's difficult. And I never overcome it, but I'm going to try again. And I know that God's the only one that can help you, But I'm not going to ask. Or I'm not going to ask that brother or that sister because I'm self-sufficient. Because I'm not like a child. Because I'm not humble because I got pride. That's the essence of a young child. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. Okay, guys. Okay, tough guys. You want to be great? Then become like this little child. Understand those three things. That you are dependent. Without me, you have, you have nothing. He told them that explicitly. You are dependent for me. On me for everything. They will get that eventually. Not only are you dependent upon God for everything. As a matter of fact, Christian, if you're a believer, just stop and think and meditate for a second and ask yourself. Think of every blessing that you have in your life. Every good thing. James talked about this. Every good thing. Physical, relational, spiritual, economic. Every good thing in your life that you have right now. You know know how you got it and I got it? From the grace of God. It was a gift from God. You didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It's a gift from God. That's what James says. We are dependent upon God. And then think about all the attributes about you that are good, or at least that people say are good, in terms of your winsome personality, you're a peacemaker, you're an encourager, you're this, you're that, you're handsome, you're good-looking, blah, blah, blah. And if it's true, where'd it come from? God. You are 100%, I am 100% dependent upon God for every good thing we possess. And to breathe your next breath, we are all dependent upon God for that next breath. Children are dependent and they know it. Children are weak. We are weak. We are frail. Every single one of us, even Christians. We are finite. We're in fallen bodies. We're in a fallen world. We have sin living in us constantly and continually, worrying against our soul. We are weak. And we're in the process of decay on a human level. We're not getting better. On a human point of view, from God's point, we are weak, and we need to lean on God. And that's why Paul tells us and encourages us, when we are weak, He is strong. He is our sufficiency, which takes us to that third point about a little child. They ask for help. So, Christian, I just want to encourage you today, if you're a believer, you're a Christian, you got a hardship, you got a trial, you got a battle. It's weighing you down, you're discouraged by it, you're depressed, you're frustrated, You're about to wave the white flag, stop, think. Who have you told about this? Who have you talked to and asked for help? Starting with, have you really asked God for help in this area? And many times that's easier for us to do. But you know, many times God's answer is, okay, you've told me, now go tell her. Become vulnerable. Put yourself out there. Swallow your pride. Go tell your brother about it. Go tell the appropriate person about it. Fess up. That's what Jesus is getting at. If you don't do that, you are self-sufficient. That is pride. The opposite of humility. James chapter 5 says that the saints, are you struggling? Are you hurting? Are you sick? Are you depressed? Go call the elders. Tell them about it. What's one of my favorite things in the world? when one of our members comes to me and the elders asking for help. I love that. Oh, you're so busy, Pastor. No, I'm not. Oh, I don't want to burden you. That's what I get paid for. And that's what the Bible says, and that's what I love. So looking back 15 years at GBF and CBC, thinking, "Mm, our people don't ask for enough help. Why not? I don't know the answer. Maybe we need to be reminded of what Jesus thought about it. Don't be self sufficient. Ask for help. It doesn't have to be the pastor, but maybe start with a fellow brother. Trust it, it's got to be a believer who can give you the right answers from a spiritual point of view. But your elders, absolutely, if you're a member, they're your shepherds. God put them there for a reason. Go ask them. At a minimum, I don't need to solve all your problems and be your psychologist. What does it say in James 5? Pray! Have the elders pray for you. I can do that. God help help this person. God, give us wisdom. So next Sunday, when we give out and say about that prayer card, that white card for prayer, and we say, write down your prayer requests and, and praises and on the white card, and then those will be distributed to the elders. We, we will be flooded next week. I can feel this. I'm not a prophet, but I feel it coming on. <laughs> we will be flooded with so many prayer white cards and emails this week asking for help. That would be awesome. That would be cause for celebration. Do not be self-sufficient. Be like a young child let me let me zip through in conclusion uh, just a definition of just to compound uh, and go a little more detail on the definition of pride and humility and just some practical application with that as we close Uh, what is pride and when I say pride it has to be defined I'm not talking about the good pride there pride can mean different things pride can be a good thing I'm proud of my children and their whatever that's that's legit at times This is sinful pride we're talking about, just to be clear. Sinful pride, which is, at heart, it's love of self. And all love of self is illegitimate. All love of self is sinful. You don't need to love yourself. You don't need to forgive yourself. That's from the pit. The book of Ephesians says, Paul said, through the Spirit of God, no one hates themselves. You know what that means? Everybody loves themselves what the Bible says. What is pride? Loving yourself. And we are all guilty. Question, don't answer out loud. Do you struggle with the sin of pride? Don't answer out loud. I'll answer it for you. Yes, you do. And so do I. When it comes to a diagnosis from the Bible about pride, pride, man, that's where it all starts. Pride was the first sin. Pride is the devil's sin. Pride is the root of all of our sins. Every sin we commit flows from pride. Pride is all about self. Why do we sin? It's all about self. Pleasing self. Satisfying self. God literally says in Proverbs and many other places, I hate pride. God hates it. Uh, Isaiah 14, if you have opportunity, just read it. And there's the devil talking when he first sinned. Isaiah 7 14. I did this. I am this. I am great. I'm the greatest creation. I, 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 I. I, I, I. It's all about me. I, me, my. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, same thing. I built this city. I built this empire. I, and then God, boom, strikes him for his pride. Herod, same thing in Acts chapter 12. Struck dead of pride. So self comes first. Inflated view of self. We don't see our weakness or we deny our weaknesses or we minimize our weaknesses, or worst of all, we justify our weaknesses. We see others' weaknesses. That's pride. Especially people we know. And the better you get to know somebody and see their idiosyncrasies, the more pride you can have towards judging that person. We want our own way. I want my way. That's pride. We compare ourselves by the wrong standard. And what do we do? We compare ourselves with other people. Did you know that you can always find somebody worse than you in a certain area? That is so easy to do. We talk about ourselves more than we listen to others. And instead of asking them questions, it's all me. Kate, don't want to convict you too much, or burden you down with guilt before lunch. But anyway, think, just evaluate this morning from the time you got up to the time you got to church and sat down, think about the conversations you had. And was it all about you? Or was it more, more about you? Here's what I did, here's my problem, here's my this, here's my that, me, me, me. Or did you stop, pause, listen? Well, how are you doing? Listening. To the other person. Because someone who's filled with pride, it's just all about their agenda and what they want. Me, me, me. They're completely myopic and focused on self and almost unable to have an other-oriented perspective. And the Bible says, one another, love one another. We focus on our problems, our struggles. And from Proverbs, quote, let another Man praise you and not your own lips. What is true humility? We'll close with this. Romans 12.3, do not think more highly of yourself, but have an objective assessment about yourself when you evaluate yourself. Lowliness of mind, how you think, it's a heart issue. Humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is a true understanding of your weaknesses and your frailties. Humility is recognizing your own sin and comprehending its full affront and wickedness in light of God's holiness and perfection. That's humility. Humility is our ability to fully admit our own sins, our sin nature, our weaknesses, our deficiencies, our flaws. Humility is our understanding of our own sin against God is worse than anyone's sin committed against us. I will say that again. True humility is understanding that our sin we commit against God is greater, worse than infinitely so, any sin that any other person commits against us. And yet God in Christ forgives us for all of our sins. So should we forgive others, Paul says in Colossians. True humility is understanding that we deserve death, hell, and God's wrath because of our sin. True humility is you welcome feedback, correction, criticism. We don't all do that perfectly we got to have teachable hearts, understanding we haven't arrived yet, right? We need God's help for that. We need the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit to do that on a regular basis. And that's something we have to deliberately pursue. We need to confess and repent when we don't do it, when we're not teachable and we're defensive and not accepting uh, criticism, usually from those who actually know us and love us and want us to get better. Hello! God sent me to you! So, with that, uh, let's go ahead to the Lord and pray and ask for His help. Number one, to search our hearts objectively so that we might be like Christ in the way He modeled it, living a life of lowliness and humility in light of God's goodness to us. Father, we thank you for our time together, the Lord's Day, the amazing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. How at some point in the Trinity, Lord, before creation in your wisdom, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had a plan to have fellowship with finite human beings and you made the plan through how your gospel would be implemented and that meant Jesus Christ humbling himself. He is the model of what that means and uh, leaving the glories of heaven came down, confining Himself a human body and human nature and still as God to live in obscurity to preach the good news and then to be arrested and crucified and to die for sinners and thank you that he rose from the dead ascended on high and reigns over all. God we need your help so desperately we thank you we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church Please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.